Anyway, well, hey, if you're visiting with us today, thank you for being here. My name is Kyle, the pastor here. We're glad that you're here with us. And uh, anyway, a couple of quick things. Uh, first of all, if you have your Bibles, you can open those to James chapter 4. We're starting chapter 4 today. Everybody said, Amen, right? Some of you are sighing a deep sigh of relief as we get closer and closer to ending James, right? It's, uh, it's been tough. It's been, it's been a good one. Um, one, well, two quick things, real fast, I promise. Um, this is the last week that your kids will be in uh, the Kid Life building downstairs, as we affectionately refer to it. Uh, everybody said amen, right? I mean, it's very exciting. Yes. Okay. Well, I figured more people would be excited, but whatever. Uh, so next week, when you come, uh, you will come here, and we'll do check-in and all right out here in the foyer, and, and you'll be shown... Um, Probably, it's very likely that your kids will sit with you in service unless they're nursery age next week. Not, not saying that will happen, but it might happen. Uh, we're going to try as hard as we can to get these other rooms ready for next week, but they are getting very close. Anybody like what's happening? Yeah? Look okay? Okay, good. Good. Uh, on a word of that, there, were, there was a group uh, of, of a lot of you here yesterday. Some started at 8 or earlier, uh, and, and some of you were here till 8.30 p.m. last night. So I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for all of your uh, hard work, and, and all of the people sitting here who weren't able to come say thank you also, right? We're, we're, we're grateful for that. So y'all give them a hand, give yourselves a hand, that way nobody knows who is who in that. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so uh, one other thing is uh, Alan and Shay. If you guys don't mind, would you just kind of stand for a second? Alan and Shay Garrett are here with us this morning. Amen. Y'all give them a hand. Woo! Uh, y'all can be seated. Uh, Alan and Shay were able to move over the weekend, so they're two days fresh here at, back in Magnolia for them, and uh, looking forward to serving with them. Amen. Uh, and so y'all be sure and introduce yourself. Welcome Alan and Shay uh, after service. Spend a minute or two with them. And uh, I think you'll grow to love Alan and Shay. Amen. All right. So James, week seven. Uh, this is faith made visible is what we've been calling this. Hey, we do have it. I didn't, wasn't sure what all you'd be limited to, Josh. Uh, Josh and I had a war of words yesterday as we were trying to get this TV working. So uh, he wanted to have projection. I kept telling him, let's just scrap it, scrap it. He's like, no, we're having projection, dang it. So I, I think he wanted to cuss me, and that was all he could get out. So um, anyway, it worked well. Uh, and, and I'm grateful that, it's, that he pushed me on that, right? And, all right, so... James has been exploring this idea of making your faith visible, right? In the way that we live, that people see it in our lives, people see it, uh, not only do they see it in your life, but hopefully as we live out our faith, we begin to see and are encouraged to see God working that faith deeper and deeper in us and to where that's working itself out in our lives. And, and that's something to rejoice about. That's something to be excited about. And so uh, we've just been looking at that relationship between faith and work. So many times faith and works feel like they should butt heads, but we're not saying that we're trying to earn salvation. Amen? Uh, and I just want to keep that before you each week. What we're saying is because we're saved, there is a work that follows now. There, there are characteristics of a believer, of a disciple of Christ, and, uh, and so we've been walking through those. James 1.18, at the very beginning of the letter, remember he reminds us, 
that it's God who begins the good work in you. It's God who does this good work in us that brings us forth in new life. And so we are grateful for that. Amen. That, that, he, that, that God has shown His mercy in such a way and His grace in such a way and that we respond in faith and get to live it out. So last week we talked about how true faith seeks God's wisdom. So we laid out two different wisdoms. There was a worldly wisdom, and then there's a godly wisdom. Now, the worldly wisdom was the one that was natural to us. It's the one that looks good, feels good, seems right to us, as Proverbs 14 says, uh, but in the end, it leads to death, right? And so it's not good for our relationships. It's not good for uh, us internally uh, as we as we begin to look at that. And then we looked at God's wisdom, which on the outside, doesn't always look good to us because usually it costs us something. We don't want to give something up. We don't want to lay something down. We don't want to deny ourselves. We don't want to take up a cross. We don't really want to follow Jesus if it's going to cost something. And so it doesn't look good. But what we know is that as we try it, as we trust Him and not ourselves, we grow to love that. We, we grow to love what God's working in us, what He's doing in us. And, and so it becomes good for us and good for those around us. So true faith seeks God's wisdom. Today is going to be true faith seeks God's wisdom part two. And so chapter three ends really in the middle of a thought. And James is going to continue that thought here in chapter four. And he's going to kind of tie it all together by going back to his little talk on speech he gave in chapter three. That was fun, right? And so he's going to draw us back to that. And those are kind of the bookends of... We'll just call it a rant, if you will, on worldly wisdom and the way that we operate. Uh, And so uh, what he's going to talk about today, though, he's going to take it a little bit further. Instead of worldly wisdom uh, leads to death, he's going to say worldly wisdom, is it, it leads you into two types of friendships. Two types of friendships. Now, this is friendship of my life, either to the world or to God himself. And so we're going to dive into that uh, this morning. And chapter 4 is just going to illustrate the disorder that results from that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that we looked at last week. When we start to exalt ourselves over the things of God, uh, we're going to get to look at the disorder that happens there. So let's pray, ask God to bless this time, anoint it with His Spirit that we would learn well today. Father, we come before You and we say thank You again uh, just for this opportunity to be together, to be with one another uh, in in this church and uh, within this body. Father, right now we ask uh, that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, which you've placed on the inside of every single one of us. And Father, we ask that he uh, would help us mature in you, that we would become more and more like Christ uh, day in and day out, and just this slow, grinding process of sanctification. Reveal to us your truths that we would live by them today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as a kid, some of you may have heard this, but as a kid... Uh, I've mentioned before that I really loved playing baseball. Like I, I totally enjoyed baseball. It was a blast, and and, and so I would spend my summer days and, and my weekends uh, when it wasn't summer, and we would just get in the neighborhood. You don't see this a lot anymore either, by the way. We'd get in the neighborhood with all the kids, and we would just play baseball like from daylight. Uh, from daylight rise to sundown, and, and we would just play and play and play. And so I was a bit of what I would call like a, a summer days and weekend warrior, okay? 
in my backyard. And, and then when it would come to playing on a team, and, and I grew up playing with some of you in here, so it's okay to laugh. You, you remember these days, right? I, I, I would think that I was fast and I wasn't fast. My, my hips looked like they were coming out of joint as I was running. I, I couldn't throw the ball uh, as hard for some reason when I was playing on the ball field because I was scared that I would injure someone. That's how I, I just thought I was uh, Randy Johnson or something, you know? I, and, and I wouldn't swing as hard because I, I was afraid of the ball. I mean, there's just so many things that went into my awfulness when it came to baseball in a ballpark with fans, and, and that's a whole nother thing. I didn't want to be in front of the people playing. I didn't want people yelling at me, cheering me on. Uh, I just liked playing in the backyard, and so uh, I just knew, though, I just had it in me. I'm going to be an all-star. Like I'm, I'm going to play baseball for the rest of my life. I had conversations with my parents about, I'm going to buy you guys an RV. And this is before I knew much about geography, apparently. I'm going to buy you guys an RV, and you can drive to every single one of my games, right? That's how rich I'm going to be. Not a plane ticket, an RV, right? And you can drive to every single one of my games and watch me play baseball. And they, they were so sweet, so kind for a few years, right? And they were like, yeah, that would be great. Sounds great. They would try to help me get better. And I just wasn't getting any better. And so... Uh, I was basing my whole future, though, off of being able to play baseball. Like everything I thought about and, and talked about, and it, it wasn't just as a kid. Like it's cute when you're five and six and seven and eight, but as I was getting into my early teens, I'm like, man, I'm going to play baseball. I still had never made an all-star team in my life. And, and so it's like, how are you going to play baseball the rest of your life? And so uh, what happened was, and I'm basing it off of just this selfish desire to be, to, to be famous to be rich and to play baseball my whole life. I just, I love it. I still love the game. And so finally, after all those years of not making an all-star team, after all those years of being just completely terrible at baseball, uh, my dad comes to me and he just says, Kyle, we got to talk. Okay, dad, what's up? He said, well, it's about baseball. So what about baseball, dad? You know, I love baseball, right? I mean, have I told you how much I love baseball? I'm going to buy you guys an RV. He's like, yeah, I I remember that. Uh, But I, I need to let you know something. Yes, you're not very good. <laughs> my, my dad, lovingly, is just putting this in front of me. He says, you're not real great. You're, you're not very good. You haven't made an all-star team. I, I just think, I'm not saying we have to quit baseball, but let's just start thinking about other things, right? And, and so uh, at that same time, it's really crazy. Somebody gave me a book about Billy Sunday. Many of you know Billy Sunday, right? I mean, he was great baseball player, retired baseball, became an evangelist. And that just kind of began to slowly transform. I I just kind of look back at that as a moment where the idea that I could one day be a preacher was birthed in me. And it just happened out of this very real conversation of dad telling me, you need to just put that selfish ambition you have aside and start thinking about a different plan for your life, right? I mean, he didn't make it overly spiritual, uh, but he was just telling me, you're not very good. You need to think about doing something else. And and God kind of took that and did uh, whatever he's trying to do now, which I'm grateful for. Amen. And, And so it was a humbling experience. Nobody wants to hear their dad say, you're not very good at something, right? No, nobody wants to hear that, but it was very humbling. My dad was very loving, very encouraging, encourages me in everything uh, to this day, and what I what I notice is, is is even still in my life, and as I got into high school and college and and so forth, you start to think, man, I would like to just do this. I, I would like to make a lot of money doing this, or I would like for my family to look like this, or I would like to drive this specific vehicle, or and you just start. Everything is based on 
this idea that I can have whatever I want, whenever I want it. And, and that's kind of the culture we're raised up in. And, and, it's, and it infiltrates everything about the way I live and so that I don't steward things well that God has granted me. I don't steward finances well. I don't steward relationships well. I don't steward my family well. I don't disciple my children well or, or live in an atmosphere of, of loving relationship with my wife when I'm striving after the things that I want, right? I mean, I have run, Patricia is so sweet. That's what many of you know, right? It's taken her a few years to start pushing back against me. Praise the Lord, it started. Uh, but in the first few years of our marriage, I could just, I could get away with whatever I wanted to get away with, whether it was buying something stupid or running up credit card debt or, or having hobbies that weren't glorifying to God and in our marriage and trying to help those things out. And, and she would just be like, okay, you know, do what you want. And she would just sit at home and, and let me do those things. And many of you women in here are like, I would never do that. And, and it's good. It's taken Patricia some years to get to that point. And I've, I'm thankful for her grace, but it's taken some time for God to show me just how selfish I am naturally. Like just how much I want what I want all the time and, and how that's not good for me. That's not good for others around me. And, and so I began to kind of ask the question, why? Why is it this way? And, and, it, and it's a lot like worldly wisdom and what we talked about last week. It's just so natural for us to do what we want to do, to think about what we want to think about and do the things that we want to do. And so you and I want what we want, and we, and we live in a world that says wrongfully, don't withhold anything from yourself. You deserve it all. Like, whatever your heart desires, you deserve it all. And that's where Solomon and Ecclesiastes pushes back, and he says, no, I did that for seasons. There was nothing that I withheld from my sight, nothing that I withheld from my desires. I gained everything I wanted. And still he was left to say, it's vanity of vanities. It's meaningless. It is nothing without the power of God at work in my life. And so uh, I'm slowly learning these things, but the natural bent of our heart is to wonder. It's, it's just a slow, even as Christians, it's to slowly just wander away from God, isn't it? I mean, we see what we want to do. We, do, we see these desires in front of us, so we just kind of naturally start to walk in that direction, wander away from God in those ways. And so James says this causes disorder. And this is where the wisdom of disorder from last week is going to play into what we read this week. He says this causes great disorder in your life because it's based on worldly wisdom. And so there's two kinds of wisdom, that worldly and godly wisdom, that are going to lead to two kinds of friendship. And again, it's going to be bookend with this little two verses at the end on speech. And so uh, James 4, 1 through 12, let me just read this uh, to you this morning. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Verse 4, you adulterous people. I mean, you know, that's not nice, right? I mean, that, that's blunt. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Verse 6. Let's, let's just read this first part of verse 6, that first sentence together. All right? One, two, three. But he gives more grace. Amen. Amen. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 9 wrecked me this week. (laughs) I I put just a hint of it on Facebook, kind of what it was doing to me, but verses 9 and 10 just completely wrecked me. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I I say it wrecked me because I take my sin so lightly sometimes. And it's so easy to do because it's just that natural desire of my heart. It's the things I want. And so it it pleases me to get those things, to do those things uh, most of the time. And so I'll just take it lightly. A lot of times. I don't think about it. I've certainly not wretched and mourning and weeping about my sin very often. Verse 11 Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Verse 12 There was only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So anyway, so there's a lot of things happening here. The first one uh, that we want to examine is friendship with the world. Friendship with the world there in verses 1 through 5. And so uh, we need to clarify the term friendship or redefine it because a lot of us think of friendship and we begin to think of this very casual relationship. Like uh, we've gone to saying that's my best friend uh, and and we just try to, we have to clarify what friendship means now when we're telling somebody about a friend of ours. Like that's, that's a friend who's more like an acquaintance. That's a friend who is a best friend. You see what I'm saying? Or we may just say that's a friend. What James is saying when he says friendship is not, it's not casual at all. It was actually very, very serious in his time. It meant close intimacy. Close intimacy. It meant we were very close, more like along the lines of that best friend model, maybe even further than that. And so James is saying friendship with the world equals conflict with others, conflict with yourselves, and then conflict with God. And so if that's true, if that's what friendship with the world means, then again, I think we have to ask, how can we be so dumb as to want that, right? Why do we want that all the time? Why do we let these things fill our lives all the time? And where does it come from? And so the answer of that will help us not feel quite so dumb. (laughs) But if it's just that surface level, then I begin to think, man, why would I ever choose to be friends with the world. But this is what we see here happening in this text is that friendship with the world comes from sinful desires of the flesh. It comes from that natural sinful desire of the flesh. And so verse 1 confirms this when he says, what causes quarrels and fights among us? Is it not this, 
that your passions are at war within you. So it's that sinful desire within us that's at war. And so we want selfish gain. We want pleasure. We want whatever is best for us. And so putting uh, such sinful people together causes fights and quarrels. Again, he's talking about the body here. And so last week I told you, and I'll say it again this week because some of you may have mentioned it, at the beginning of the year we went through five vision statements for our church. And one of the things that we said, and it may be the one that means the most to me, is that we want to glorify God by being a place that values uh, gentle, honest relationships. Gentle, honest relationships. In other words, I want to be a place where you can come in here and know that you're not okay, and you can confess that you're not okay, and that's going to be met with gentleness and with people who want to help you become not okay, or who want to help you become okay from that not okay standpoint. I mean, that's really dumbing it down, but that's what I'm trying to say is that we want to be a place where people find hope here based on the relationships they see. I also think that's important because the world has grown tired of, when I say the world, I mean sinners, have grown tired of seeing a church that is always at war with itself, especially in the local body. Many people in this county don't attend church anymore because of church. I'm not saying because of Jesus. I think those people haven't tried Jesus. They tried church, they tried church people, they were burned. And that falls on church people. That falls on us as image bearers of God. And so we want to redirect that in the way that we operate here in this body. So if you were in my home group last week, we, we talked about this at length. This is extremely important for uh, the, the type of body we see ourselves becoming. So when you put sinful people together, like you and me, right? I'm sinful, you're sinful, we're, we're imperfect. It's a lot like marriage. Okay, we're, we're two sinful people who are going to covenant together. I mean, it's the craziest thing ever. They're going to covenant together to live with each other for the rest of their lives and to get along, right? And, and, and we're going to try to do that as sinful people, and it just doesn't always go well. How I many you know there's arguing at times? There, there's pain at times. There's hurt at times. Don't be nudging your spouse right now, right? There, is, uh, there, there, there are these times where it's just difficult, and the same happens in the local body. And so, uh, like we talked about last week, it's that godly wisdom, knowing that we've been shown mercy that allows us to show mercy, knowing that we've received grace that allows us to show grace, knowing that we've been loved by God that allows us and shows us we should love one another. Amen? And so we, we learn to love God. We learn to love one another. And marriage takes the same thing. And so imperfect people forever equals no peace, right? There's just not always going to be peace there just not always going to be peaceful. There will be pain. There will be times where you hurt one another. Uh, but by God's grace, there can be peace. And so sinful uh, desires, as you see in a marriage, as you see in a local body, are dangerous. They're dangerous and, and, and because they cause this fighting. They cause this quarreling. They cause us to stumble. They cause us to push each other out of the way to gain what we want. And so what motivates that? We saw where it comes from. It comes from the sinful desire. We know that that's dangerous. What motivates that? Well, the motivation of a sinful desire is a longing for earthly pleasure. It's a longing to be pleased here on earth right now, to have everything I want here. And so verse 3, uh, again, confirms this. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your own passions. And, and so we don't pray, and so therefore we are not 
a representation of Christ, or when we are praying, we're asking wrongly. We're asking for things that would gratify us. We're treating God more like Santa Claus than someone who is to sanctify us and to build us into a person who mirrors the image of Christ. Amen? It's not what God's for. It's not what God is about. God is about creating us into little human beings that image Christ well, that a world can look on and see us and then see the glory of the Father as well. So James is saying, if you're not getting what you're praying for, you're praying wrong. You're asking in the wrong ways. You're asking with the wrong motivations, the wrong desires. I'm not saying that about all prayers. I'm just saying we need to examine the prayers that we're praying, the ones that we're not seeing answered, and ask, man, is my motivation messed up in this? Because there's sometimes we need to keep like uh, Jesus teaches. We need to be like that nagging woman who comes before the judge and just keeps pleading her case, pleading her case, pleading her case, and eventually the judge just grants it to her because of her persistence. So there must be persistence in prayer. Don't, don't be discouraged in those things. Let's keep more. Keep moving. Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, as we pray, to start with what? Hallowed be your name, right? What's he saying? He's saying, your name be honored, your name be made holy, your name above my name. And so if we start our prayers there, everything that flows after that has to come from that standpoint. So Jesus is saying, pray this way. Pray that you honor God's name, that you make his name holy. Why? So that you're not trying to glorify your own name. You're not trying to seek after things that make you uh, God, that make you uh, the best. And so uh, it ensures that we seek what is best for the sake of God's name. And, and, and so we get into that it's your will, not our will, be done, right? We're, we're praying that God's will would be done. And so friendship with the world says it differently. They say, my will be done, my name be great. Instead of God's will be done, God's name be great. And so hostility towards one another, as James is saying here, is hostility towards God. When your motivation is mixed up, when your desires are mixed up, and when you're, when you're falling into those things, then there will be hostility with other people in your life. And so if you find yourself at a place where you're, you've got hostility from your life to those around you constantly, then you know that by what James is saying, there is also hostility between you and God. That you're living according to your natural desire, according to your sinful desires, and not what God would want best for you. And so a friend with the world results in spiritual adultery against God, and this is why James goes from referring to us as brothers and sisters to adulterers. He says, you adulterers. The more we conform to the world, the more we cheat God, the more we betray God. And so James is saying, let's look at the wisdoms we're living by and go the other way. Right? We need to repent, which is where verse 5 starts. He's saying, repent. God jealously longs for the spirit that he has placed in us. And when we're operating in our sinful desires, we're going against God. And so much like a husband or a married couple, we'll just go this way. Or for example, if Patricia, if her affections are on someone else, or something else, and not me, 
I become jealous in a righteous way over that. Like I want her affections to be on me. I want her to love me. I don't want her to love some other dude, right? And so in a much more pure and holy way, God looks at us and he says, man, there's a spirit that I've placed within you, and I long for that. I, I long to be in relationship with you. I, it hurts God to see our affections on something else or someone else above him. And, and so then anything becomes idols in our life. And so James is going to start down this road of repentance for us today. And so let's view, let's look at this uh, relationship, this friendship with God uh, a little closer. That's number two in your notes, friendship with God. Verse 6 through 10. And, and so what, we, we've read it, but what he says, what he's saying is, instead of running to the world, we run to God. Why do we run to God? Because He created us. He knows what's best for us, right? He's the creator. We're creation. He knows how best we are to operate. He knows that we operate best when we're in relationship with God first and that that totally affects in a positive way the relationships of us to one another and those sideways relationships. When our vertical relationship with God is right, the sideways relationships there become right also, or at least start tracking that direction. And so James is saying, don't run to the world any longer, run to God. So where does the desire to run to God come from? Where is this seen at? He's placed the Spirit in us. What, what, what's He doing to give us this? Well, it says He grants more grace. There's more grace. There's a gracious desire of God that he's giving you to, to even want relationship with him, to want to run to him. And, and you begin to see the operation of God in the lives of those around you. You begin to see it in teachings. You begin to see it as you read your Bible, as you pray. And you say, man, I want more of that. So you begin to run to God. You begin to run away from the world around you. And so as our sin is exposed God gives greater grace to those who are humbled by that. So instead of laughing away my sin like we were talking about earlier, when we approach our sin and we're wretched and we're mournful and we're weeping over those things, we're totally humbled by it because we see just how grotesque it is and how it separates us from the love of God. Then we're humbled in that. And God doesn't leave us in that humiliated state. He says, here's more grace for you. Here's more grace. Here's more grace. Here's more grace. Amen? Let me help you walk as I'm teaching you to walk. Here's more grace. It's the same way that we do with our children. I've used this example before. When my child begins to walk, I've been told I should push them down so that they don't walk too fast, right? Uh, so that they don't learn to run and to get into things too quickly because that creates a whole other set of nightmares. But I haven't. I don't push my kids down. When my kids fall, if they take two steps and fall, what do we do? What do we do? We cheer, right? We're cheering them on. They take, two, they take their first two steps and hit the ground. You're like, yes, 
You did it. You walk. Get back up. Get back up. Walk some more, right? And this is the same way God is approaching you and I. He's saying, as you begin to take these steps and you fall, God's saying, you took steps. You're walking in the right direction. Get back up. Here's more grace for you. Here's more mercy for you. Get back up. Let's learn to walk. And before you know it, you're running and you're playing and you're enjoying it. You're not just walking like this anymore. You're walking straight forward. You're not bumping into walls anymore. Why? Because God gives more grace. He said, I'm going to give you all the grace that's necessary for you to learn to walk with me. I'm going to grant you that. And so the motivation here is a longing for eternal satisfaction. The desire comes from God. The, the motivation is this longing for eternal satisfaction instead of my earthly satisfaction, the things that happen right now. And so friendship with God realizes that friendship with the world now means opposition to, to God for eternity. If I want to be friends with the world now, that means I've got to be in opposition with God for eternity. So let me submit to God. Let me surrender to God now. Be friends with God now so I can be friends with God for eternity. And so what does submission look like? There's a few things that James lines out here. There's five that I've written down. You just write these in your margin if you want to. Submission looks like this. Number one, resist Satan forcefully. We resist Satan forcefully. We stop believing the lies that Satan wants to tell, and we start believing God. We say, uh, Satan's going to come to you, and he's going to say, you need this, whatever it is, more money, more friends, more whatever, more pleasure, more time off, whatever those things are. Satan's going to come to you, and he's going to say, you need all those things, and God's going to come to you and say, no, you need me. And, and that's why his burden is light. The second thing is seek God repentantly. Seek God repentantly. We see this in verse 8. He says, draw near. What's he saying? Return to our gracious Lord. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. What does that mean? It means we're turning from the world. We're turning to God. The third thing we see is pursue purity. We also see that in verse 8. By God's grace, we are to be clean on the inside and the outside. So many times we just want to clean up the outside, right? We put on some good clothes, let me go to church, look good on the outside, say I'm doing good, tell everybody things are fine. When on the inside, my life is in shambles. I'm struggling with addictions and I'm broken. What's God want to do? He wants to come in and create in you a new heart, renew a right spirit in you. Why? So that you can be free. You can live according to God's best for you and not your own. Fourth thing we should do or what submission looks like is to treat sin seriously. You and I are in the business of classifying sins. God is not. We say sins are greater than, one's greater than the other. God does not. All sin is rebellion against God. And so therefore, it should be treated as such should be treated with a serious nature. And so we shouldn't just laughingly disregard it. Like, oh, I told a lie. I got away with that. I, I covered myself. Woo, that was close. I almost found out who I truly was. Instead of just disregarding it laughingly, we should humble ourselves, 
Trust God and let him exalt us as the one who, who truly exalts. And that leads me to the fifth one. Trust God completely. If you're going to exalt yourself, that means you trust yourself. How's that working out for you? Right? Do you always make the right decision? Do you always do the best thing? No. So why in the world do we trust ourselves more than we trust God? I have no idea, but we do daily, me included. Only God will truly exalt you. Only God truly exalts. It matters not our status here on this earth. Only God truly exalts. And so what happens is when we've been humbled, we become friends with God instead of friends with the world, it affects how we speak to others. And really, whether you're friends with the world or friends with God affects how you speak to others. And so let me just wrap this up with kind of giving you a picture of what, how this changes who we are. It, he's going to book in chapter 3 on speech with 4 through uh, 11 and 12 on speech. And so worldly speech, he says, discourages one another and dishonors God. It discourages one another by slander, by gossip, by destructive criticism. This doesn't mean we can't help each other be better people. This doesn't mean if I'm sinning that I don't want you to come tell me I'm sinning because that would be discouraging. It may be a little discouraging, but that would be the best thing you could do for me, right? I mean, I want you to help me see those things. The, the other thing uh, is that it dishonors God. Why? Because it puts me above God. It, it tears down the body. It tears down the church specifically is what he's talking about here. And so I don't know if the church was really committing first-degree murder when he says, uh, you, you, you ask and do not have, so you murder. I, I'm not sure that, that that's really meaning first-degree murder. I, I, it would appear that he's referring to what Jesus taught on in Matthew 6, that, that even our hate for our brother is the same as murder. And so it tears down the church. Then he kind of outlines what godly speech looks like. The first thing he says is instead of discouraging one another, it encourages one another, right? Even if you need to say something that could hurt, if it's said with love and with regard to what God's word commands, it is encouraging still. The second thing is, is that that type of speech honors God, does not dishonor his name, it honors his name. And so this is how believers should be characterized. It's speech that shows a love for God and a love for one another. And so as we walk from worldly wisdom, which is natural to us, into godly wisdom, which is not so natural to us, but we're saying, I trust God, then that results in friendship with God instead of friendship with the world. And as we begin to see that take root in our hearts, out of the overflow of what God's doing in my heart, my speech becomes such that it glorifies God in the way that I deal with people. I show love in my speech for God. I show love in my speech for people as well. And so it's out of the overflow of what God's doing in your heart. This is true wisdom flowing from Friendship with God. I want to leave you with 1 Thessalonians 5.24 and Philippians 1.6. Both give us a characteristic of God that is highly encouraging for us today. 
essentially what both are saying is that God is faithful. What he's faithful in is completing the work that he starts in you. Amen? What does that mean? What well, means that I submit to God, he completes the work. I surrender to God, he completes the work. He begins to work those things in me. And so I make this step, I make the decision. You and I are responsible to make the decision to surrender to God and trust that God will do his work in us. Amen? And the Bible tells us clearly that he's faithful. It promises clearly that he's faithful to complete the work which he's starting in you. So where I'm pursuing worldly wisdom and I want to surrender and pursue godly wisdom instead, it says that God is faithful to complete that work in me. Amen? Amen. Would you guys stand to your feet this morning?